Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kirk Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. And today mm. we are going to be looking at trauma and the body. Mm. And uh, I am happy to be here with you, Kurt. Um, mm. You know, these, these uh, recordings that we do mostly on Fridays are one of the highlights of my week. Me too, man. Really, yeah, really great. Too. Yeah. So tell us, where are we going today? You know, I'm looking at, you know, uh, you've shared some notes with me for where, you know, some things you want to talk about today. Mm-hmm. And um, there are words on this paper <laughs> in front of me that I really do not think are English. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, the these accented A's and it looks, I feel like, I feel like we're going to be going into some Nordic, you know, I want to hear you say these words because I don't even want to try. <laughs> so if that doesn't oh entice God. people to stick around and listen to the podcast, <laughs> I don't know what will. Oh, my gosh. Uh, we have, we're just getting started. Holy cow. Well, um, you know, I am excited in particular about this episode because, you know, I g- grew up in the field of medicine and particularly in the field of psychiatry. And we're, you know, we're trying to study the mind and we're taking care of patients who have all kinds of psychiatric impairments. And for, you know, it it was really how interesting it would be that, you know, except when we were talking about, you know, pharmacology, you know, what might an antipsychotic or an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medication do, or maybe, you know, some kind of other intervention, uh, you know, electroconvulsive therapy or something of that nature, there just really wasn't a lot of conversation in my training about the role that the body itself is playing in how we experience our life. Now, we kind of all know that. And of course, if you, you know, if you have a heart attack, we know it. If you break your wrist, you know it. But to consider the role of the body in the mind, in in the development of the mind in the first place, uh, we begin to discover that uh, it's, it, it plays a huge uh, role. And, you know, the subtitle of today's episode, uh, then the Lord God formed the man, uh, this, this, uh, you know, our, our Christian anthropology highlights that when God formed us, he starts, he doesn't start with our thinking self. He doesn't start with our breath. He doesn't start with our awareness or consciousness. He starts with mud. Mm. The Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the earth. He formed man's body. And he begins this formation in a very intimate way. He's not forming it from a distance. He's down in the mud. The Hebrew text would indicate in Genesis 2, 7, that God's down in the mud, forming it with his hands, and that he breathes the breath of life, kind of like CPR, into the man's nostrils. The man becomes a living being. And the man can't become a living being unless he has a body. And therefore, in many respects, we learn that our body, as it turns out, encounters things, uh, knows things, as it were, long before our thinking mind knows things, anytime we're doing anything, when we walk across the floor, when we drive our car, when we uh, have sex, our bodies are are doing things, knowing things in ways that our minds themselves don't always know them. And this follows along in our, just our general development. We start out with this, you know, two cells come together in conception. They develop into a zygote and it forms this 
thing called a neural tube, and at the end of the tube, there's this brain stem, and the brain stem moves to our limbic circuitry. The brain stem we have in common with reptiles, the limbic circuitry we have in common with lower mammals, all of which we would say like have bodies, but we don't imagine them to be thinking in the way that we're thinking. Eventually, it comes to our neocortex, the part of us that makes us most uniquely human. And it's easy when we talk about trauma for us to think that we're really limiting our conversation to you know like what we feel and what we think and how I function in that sense. But today we really want to emphasize and and look at the role that the body itself plays and what happens when the body experiences trauma as part of the mind, when the body as part of the mind experiences trauma. And one of the first things that we would say about bodies is that our body is formed in an intimate setting. Conception takes place as a matter of intercourse or, you know, in vitro fertilization, but it comes because people are being intimately connected with one another. So bodies are formed in intimate settings, that that formation is a slow and intentional process. It doesn't just happen instantaneously for God to form the man, like you form something out of, if you're going to mold clay, that takes time. And it's also conducted, that formational process in Genesis is conducted with the long-term intention for well-being of the one who's being formed. The well-being of the one being formed is kept in mind. And that's important when it comes, we'll see later what happens. Because when, when we're thinking about our children, when we're thinking about our friends, when we're being mindful of others, we're not just being mindful of them in the moment. Hopefully, we're being mindful of them, the long-term well-being of them. I want to act toward them and toward their bodies with the intention of encouraging an enc- their encounter with flourishing. I want to think about that. Trauma, as we'll see, does just the opposite. It, in an instant, does whatever it's going to do, and it's not thinking about them or their well-being at all. And then we get to later in the second chapter of Genesis, and we see that when God creates the woman... You know, again, God could have just said, hey, we're just going to take some more, uh, some additional mud and we're going to do the same thing. But no, there is a certain kind of wounding that takes place. Now, he causes Adam to enter into a deep sleep, but he still takes his rib. He opens up a space. He takes his rib. He closes up the space. And we sense then and we see that in the text that God has the woman with him in some way, shape, or form for how long, we don't know. And then he brings the woman to the man and the man responds with poetry and song. He's just had some kind of general anesthesia applied. And when he awakens, beauty and goodness is what he responds with. And this is something else that we would say that trauma does the opposite of when it comes to our bodies. Trauma leaves us in a heap of carnage. It doesn't bring us to places of poetry and song. In this way, trauma is in many respects the opposite in every way with the exception of the context. The context is often an intimate context in which we experience traumatic events. But it's often sudden, not this deliberate, careful, mindful formation or surgical operation. It's sudden. It doesn't keep the well, it doesn't have the well-being of the victim in mind. And it doesn't have the long-term vision of beauty and goodness for all who are concerned in mind. The body then, very soon as we develop, is shaping the brain and the mind with all of its ascending messages, all the neural networks, all those neurons that 
run from your heart rate and your gut and your legs and your face and your hands up to the brain, shaping the brain, letting the brain know what we are sensing. And it's taking place long before the brain is actually able to make sense of all that that experience is taking place. You know, there was a series of experiments that were done with dogs. Uh, Seligman and Mayer are the ones who did this experiment. And basically, it, it created with these dogs the, you know, the, what, what they call the encounter of the inescapable shock in that they would, uh, you know, they would shock these dogs, but in a situation in which the dogs couldn't escape from the provocation. There was no way out of this cage in which the cage was electrified, the dogs were shocked and so forth and so on. And then they took those same dogs with yet another set of dogs. They compared these two sets of dogs and they took the new set of dogs and they put them in the same kind of situation with the exception that if they wanted to, they could escape. And as soon as the shock started, the new set of dogs ran out, ran away from this. But the dogs that had learned that they couldn't escape, didn't leave the cage, even though there was a wide open door. And in this way, we see that in our own lives, when we experience trauma as we've defined it, we often discover that this is not a matter of mind over matter, it's the other way around, matter over mind, that my body, just like the dog's bodies, despite the fact that their mind could see an open door, their bodies did not move. And so one of the things that we see that our trauma experiences do is that they shatter our perceptual capacity. Like the dogs were unable to perceive that there was an open door out of which they could leave. They had, there were other dogs we knew that they, they could see it and they left. They could no longer perceive things. And so this is, one of the most, this is one of the most potent issues around trauma and our bodies, that our body senses a reality in which it perceives its powerlessness. It perceives its inability to do anything. And so we find ourselves feeling like we're just stuck. We're going to be stuck with this particular sensation or feeling or image or, re- or story that I'm telling. I'm stuck with that. And there's no way for me to change my perception of that. One of the ways I then cope with these kinds of things with my body is that I dissociate. Now, when we talk about this process of dissociation, we talk about this notion of how I leave the room. Now, uh, you know, dissociation is a thing that everybody does, actually, right? When you and I are driving the car, we're, uh, when, when we are driving the car down the road, but our, you know, where you're, you're talking with Nell, who's in the passenger seat, you're having a conversation in some respects, you've actually dissociated to a certain degree from the active attunement to driving the car. And this is a good thing because this way, like your body can drive the car while you have a conversation with Nell. And this is a way that you can function and do what we might call some degree of multitasking, although you're not able to fully pay 100% attention to either one of them, which of course is why our wives, it's not a great idea to have really important conversations while we're driving the car. But we, 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 you know, we, have, we dissociate all the time. We daydream. You know, we're, we're in a conversation and we somehow get distracted and we're thinking about other things. And they say, hey, are you paying attention to me? I'm sorry, did you say like something? Phil- <laughs> um, I don't know. We, we introed the, the podcast, right? We're, we're, we're in the middle of, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I was dissociating we're, for a second. We're in the middle, we're, we're in the middle of the Scandinavian yes. alphabet. Yes. We're, we're just going over some Scandinavian <laughs> words. <laughs> okay, so... So we find so so what we find ourselves doing like we dissociate and so in some respects like the dogs are kind of are 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 doing this in a way 
they're dissociating. They're, they're not paying attention to what is real, that they have an open door. And in the same way, we misperceive things. I dissociate. I cut off. And, and, and frankly, when we, we can, you know, as many of our listeners may have had this experience of having been in the middle of traumatic events that were so bad, uh, you know, your, you know, your combat experience or your experience of sexual harassment or mistreatment or sexual abuse your physical abuse, you find yourselves in your mind going someplace else and you're not even aware of what's happening anymore. We often have a hard time remembering these events because the part of my brain that needs to be online in order to explicitly recall events as they're happening in real time and space, that part of my brain is not engaged. And so I don't recall things that have happened to me often or it's often very fuzzy, but my body my body continues to hang on to this. And so we find ourselves often in these, what we would call inescapable prisons, just like the dogs do, but not because my mind isn't able to think my way out. It's because my body has been so overwhelmed and overpowered by the events themselves. Hmm. There is a researcher by the name of Stephen Porges. Uh, for those of you who I've not heard of his name, P-O-R-G-E-S. It is not Scandinavian, I don't believe. Um, but uh, he is a researcher, a neuroscientist, who back in 1994, so it's been a while uh, that he's been at this work, uh, he developed what eventually became known as the polyvagal theory, and we're going to talk about that. Is that one of those words? No, polyvagal was actually my fifth grade uh, math <laughs> teacher. Um, I learned a lot from Miss Vagel. She had a brother named Joe. Joe Vagel. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 Okay. It's going very well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, his work has really demonstrated the role of the body in the experience of trauma. And he begins by drawing our attention to what we commonly call the autonomic nervous system. Now, many of our listeners will have, have heard of this, maybe like in you know high school biology classes, this notion that there is the part of us, we the autonomic nervous system, we like to call it the automatic nervous system. Mm -hmm. We it's, it's a part of our nervous system that helps keep our heart beating, helps our breathing rate continue. It moves our GI tract, helps it do everything it's supposed to do. There are lots of things in our body that we don't have to command in order for it to happen, like I have to command my hand to move. And we're all grateful that we've got this automatic, this autonomic nervous system. Right. And there are a couple of features of it, the fundamental way that it, it's involved in the development of our well-being has to do with two or three things. First of all is our fight or flight system. And we've all heard of this. This is part of our, it is housed in our brainstem. We like to call it our sympathetic drive system. And anytime we sense danger, we are going to do one of two things. We are, first of all, as animals, the first thing we would typically do, the first thing that all animals do if they're able is they will flee a situation. Mm -hmm. And if they're not able to flee the situation, they will marshal whatever they can to fight their way out of the situation. And that's one of the first elements of the autonomic nervous system. But the other thing that the autonomic nervous system provides for us in the sympathetic drive system is this process of providing us an accelerator and a brake. 
So it also like, you know, we get hungry for things and like, I, I go for food. Like I don't have to think about being hungry. I, 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 that moves me towards seeking out food or my, you know, or water. Like I, I go for things. I see things that I'm interested in. My interest and curiosity is peaked. I don't have to just simply make plans to be curious. I don't have to make plans to be sexually aroused. Like those, these things happen. And my system, this sympathetic drive system, this accelerator moves me toward, I'm in go mode. I'm cur- It is part of the system that helps me create things. We want to make things. I'm interested, curious. I'm in movement perspective. But if I'm two years old and I'm running into the street, somebody has to put the brake on because I'm not going to do that by myself. And so we also have this braking system. It's the parasympathetic system. We have the sympathetic drive system. We have the parasympathetic system, and that will come into play in Porges's polyvagal theory. Now, all who are listening might think like, why, why are we talking about all this stuff? It's important for us to know that, um, you know, uh, we often think as, as we imagine and, and, and reflect on our own stories and our own traumas, uh, it's easy for us to wonder, why can't I just think my way out of this? Why can't I just come up with a solution for this? Why can't I just have a better understanding and somehow I will cognitively figure this out and then make a different set of choices and then I'll feel better. The reason we talk about these things is because the more we pay attention to our bodies and how our bodies work, the more we can then live and work synchronously with our body. Because what one of the things that we know that trauma does is that trauma mucks around with this autonomic nervous system. Because if I'm afraid or if I'm worried I want to be able to leave the situation just like the dogs wanted to be able to leave the cage, but they couldn't. What becomes of them? What becomes of us when we can't leave the cage? Right. This is where the polyvagal theory becomes really helpful. And the first thing that we, so when we keep in mind this autonomic nervous system, right? So we've got fight or flight and we've got the accelerator and the brake. And this notion that it really is driving us to be able to create things, to make things, that we really want to do it. And it is in those moments when we are most interested in creating that we can become most vulnerable and we don't see trauma coming. If I'm in my foxhole with my, you know, with my automatic rifle looking for the enemy, like I'm, I'm far less likely to get hoodwinked. It's when I'm with the babysitter that I trust. It's when I'm on the date with the guy that I thought was going to be kind to me. It's when I'm in the church that I have been attending as a way for to be spiritually nourished. It's when I'm, I've taken a job that I really love only to find that, you know, it's like its practices are really hard. I mean, all the, the, the you know, the, the, the innumerable, you know, it's, it's this sport that I love only to find that I have a coach that only, you know, uses, you know, certain ways of traumatizing their players in order to get results. All these things, I'm, I'm doing, the, I'm moving into this moment of creativity and that's when these things happen that I'm not looking for. So one of the first things that the polyvagal theory teaches us is that we all, as human beings, we all have what we call, when we develop and you know, grow into what we call a, a, the, the capacity of our bodies to regulate our emotion. A lot of life, a lot of life, and a lot of what the autonomic nervous system does, it helps us regulate the things that we feel. And we have all kinds of emotions Pleasant emotions, unpleasant emotions across the spectrum. And we develop a certain capacity to tolerate a range of intensity of those emotions. 
We call that the window of tolerance. If I can maintain my emotional tone within that window of tolerance, it enables me to tell my story over time more faithfully. As we'll see when we get outside that window of tolerance, when my emotion is either too chaotic or too caught up rigidly, I don't have access to all the elements of my story that I need to be able to tell because the things that are important about my story always have emotional connection and tone related to them. So what is important about the window of tolerance is that it enables me to live in a particular range of emotion while remaining connected interpersonally to other people. Newborns come into the world and they don't tolerate things very easily. They get tired, hungry, angry, and they are just wailing. They don't tolerate it very well. And over time, we would hope that when that, you know, newborn is 18 years of age, that 18-year-old is not going to be wailing in the same way when it has to go to the bathroom or when it has to, you know, get a snack because it has learned to regulate, move its emotional states within that window of tolerance. And we need this moving ourselves to states of integration, and it is absolutely contingent upon relationship interactions. I need the help of other people to help me learn how to bring my emotional states within that window of tolerance. And that's what secure attachment does in parenting. Now, along the way, as we learn to be in this window of tolerance, and then as we like to say, we like to widen it. As children age, we want those children to be able to tolerate more and more emotional experience without falling apart. This is why we would hope that the 18-year-old can be able to tolerate certain emotional states. They're not getting rid of them. They're not denying them. They're not dissociating from them. They're tolerating them. They've learned to tolerate them. Even while they are in a certain emotional space, but they're able to do it because they have a sense of connection to people. That's what these interpersonal relationships are intended to do. And the system that is responsible for enabling us to widen our window of tolerance is what Porges has called and what other researchers call the social engagement system. Every baby comes into the world with a primitive social engagement system. This system is a collection of neurons that is spread throughout the brain, throughout the body. And it is what it says it is. It is a system that enables us to engage with each other socially. And we come to learn that the most effective way that I regulate my emotional tone is by my connection to you. If I'm upset and you come to me as my dad and I sense and see you're sensing me, I'm actually able to borrow your level of calmness so just and make the, it my own. So just uh, this week... My daughter was was very emotional. She came to me. She was very upset about, you know, something. Hmm. And she was like, I don't know. She said to me, I don't know what's wrong. Mm. She's like, I'm feeling, mm. uh, you know, I have this. Mm. And so I said, but let's talk about it. So we sat and, you know, I was able to talk to her about what, you know, what are the circumstances right now that you're going through? Where are the stresses mm-hmm. coming from? Um, I was able to say, I get it. I, mm. I, I understand what you're, what, what you're, why you, you would be upset. I understand why, you know, mm. and I just want you to know mm. that I'm, I'm here for you if you need me in mm. any way. Mm. Mm. And Kurt, mm. 
you could see, you could palpably see mm. the change mm. happening mm. in her. Mm. You know, um, man, just the 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 relief, and and you know, for me, I I, talk, I went to her later, and I I just said thank you for, you know, coming to me and sharing, you know, what you were that you were feeling something that you didn't understand, whatever. I said I just I just really appreciate you having those kind of conversations with me and being open to doing that. And right. Uh, even just this week, it's just, it's just caused this whole different level of communication that we're having with each other. And, um, yeah, it's been, it's been really, really a great thing. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I don't like that she's struggling in any way, but you know, you never like to mm. see that with your kids, mm. but right. you like, right. it, it, it was thrilling that she came to me and we had conversations about it. Right. And so that's an, that, that, that man, uh, can you be my dad? Oh, please. <laughs> Listen, there's, a, there's I mean, a lot to the fact that love, you know, heals a multitude of sins because <laughs> I am, I, I would never claim to, I would never give parenting lessons, but I'm, mm. you know, I do. Well, I mean, that's, that's a perfect example of how in, in, in your attuning to her, you don't just uh, diffuse or get rid of her feelings. You provide an opportunity for her to better hold them, hmm. tolerate them. But she can now have the intensity of those feelings and they can be there. And she might perceive them as, she might perceive herself as feeling better, not just because she no longer feels any of those things at all, but because she's no longer carrying them by herself. Right. And, so, and this conversation that you're having with me and you're teaching these things today, it's encouraging me to want, just want to do that more, to, yeah. to want to continue those conversations because, you know, um, we need each other. People need each other to be able to uh, get their emotions into their window of tolerance. And, um, mm-hmm. and it just is like, yeah, I can just my presence and my sitting and being there can be of help, is of help. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And, you know, um, we might say that you could have that conversation in person Mm. is significant because it literally means that her physicality gets to interact with your physicality. Mm. She is in the presence of you and your, you know, your six foot one, six foot two body, like, and in it, 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 it in and of itself, without even the words, it in and of itself is communicating to her that you are there to hold and to, and to help provide a container for the stuff that she's feeling at the moment that seems to be spilling out all over the place yep. that she can't tolerate. And you're going to help her learn to do that. Yeah. And so not only have you helped widen her window of tolerance, you've also literally strengthened the neural firing connection pattern of her social engagement system. Hmm. And it's that kind of human interaction that is necessary for us to grow those, widen our window of tolerance, enhance our social engagement system. And the other thing that's really crucially important about this is that, you know, we said earlier that our autonomic nervous system that autopilot, it is constantly, its radar is constantly up looking for danger. And these kinds of moments that you're talking about with your daughter, it quiets that autonomic nervous system. It quiets it 
Because if we are looking for danger, we cannot create. We cannot do stand-up comic routines. We don't experience joy. We are unable to offer reflections. Mm. We need those connections in order for creativity to emerge. I, I, in, order, in order to create, I need to not be wondering if you know the saber-toothed tiger is going to come and devour me. Right. And so to strengthen that means I strengthen my capacity for creativity. I strengthen my capacity for joy, for humor, for all of those kinds of things, for rest. All those things are necessary. That, what, that we need this enlarged window of tolerance in the social engagement system in order for those things to come forward. And this is where we start to get down kind of into some of the more details of what poor just likes to say is this polyvagal theory. Like why, why do we, why do we talk about this? We talk about this polyvagal theory. Well, what's that word mean? So first of all, we talk about the fact that there are what we call 12 pairs of cranial nerves. And this might be, feel like it's, we're just getting a, you know, graduate level course in neuroscience, but it's helpful to know there are 12 pairs of cranial nerves, all of which are important for vital function. They're vital function mediators. So our optic nerves for our eyes are like our, the, the, the third, the third cranial nerve for hearing and so forth and so on. My gag reflex, all the things that help us survive. The 10th pair is what we call the vagus nerve. And if you imagine we, there, there are pairs, there's a, a one on the right side, one on the left side of the brain, they come out and all the, the vagus nerve is, is such a big, important nerve because it innervates the entire series of hollow organs that we have. All of our viscera, we like to call our viscera hollow organs. So my lungs and my entire GI tract and my cardiac system, right? My, my heart is all innervated by this system because the heart, the lungs, the GI tract are also sending messages up to my brain. It is giving messages to the internal state of my body, to my mind at all times. So it innervates this, these hollow organs, which tells me a lot about what I'm feeling, a lot about what I'm sensing, coming from my gut and my breathing and my heart rate. And the front part of this, if you imagine that this, like two branches that come out from a big tree trunk on the opposite sides of the tree trunk, the front half of each of these branches, the front part, the anterior vagus, it's what we call, it's myelinated. And what's that mean? It's this protein sheath that wraps itself around it and the reason that that's important is because the more myelin, the more flexible this part of the nerve is, the more flexible means I can turn it on and I can turn it off quickly. And this anterior portion of the vagus nerve is part of what innervates what we call the social engagement system. This system that is actively engaging with others so that, for instance, if my son comes to me and he's mad about something with me, if we're connected because of this social engagement system, he can express his anger, I can receive it, we can talk about it, and then his anger can be resolved because it's using a part of the nervous system that is flexibly able to adapt because of all the myelin that's wrapped around it. And then it has a backside or a, what we call a dorsal vagus nerve, and it's not myelinated, and that's important because of what happens with shame, what happens with trauma, which we're going to talk about in a minute. So we have the front part of the vagus, we have the back part of the vagus, and in between, we have this sympathetic drive system, my fight or flight system. So if we imagine for a moment that there is an algorithm, there is a default system 
in which the brain operates with this autonomic nervous system in which we are designed optimally to be living in and working through the social engagement system. I'm living my day, living my life, connected to others. It doesn't mean that I'm perfectly happy. It means I could be sad, upset, just like your daughter. But if I'm living within the context of the social engagement system and a widening of the window of tolerance, it means that I can still, I can be upset and still be connected. And that connection helps me regulate that sense of being upset. And so if that's okay, but then I encounter something that is too overwhelming, an emotional event that is too overwhelming, just like the dogs in the cage, I default to my flight or fight system. I'm going to do one of two things. I'm going to either flee if I can, like the second group of dogs were able to do, or I'm going to fight if I can. And so I move from the anterior portion of the vagus nerve and the social engagement system to my sympathetic drive system in my brainstem. That's default place. You know, that's the first place I default. But if I can't do that, if I can't move out of this situation, I then tend to move toward collapsing. And collapsing is the very same thing that happens with mice and with possum when they are overwhelmed. We think that when a possum plays dead, they're like consciously sitting there, laying there on the side of the road, like with one eye open, looking for when the fox is going to leave. They're not. They're unconscious because their dorsal, yes, this I see those. Yeah, come on. Come on. Talk to me. Well... <laughs> Okay, my, I love this. We're in the we're in the middle of sorry. a serious trauma conversation. My and my daughter brought a cat home with her. She moved home for a while. She brought a cat home with her, and this morning, the cat caught its first mouse. Mm. Right? We have we live at, at least it, we, we at least near, it thought it had. We live near. Well, right now I'm realizing that I put this mouse in a little Ziploc bag, and it's sitting in my garage right now, thinking the mouse. But I don't think that mouse is dead. <laughs> Well, it probably is now. <laughs> it, it might not have been when you put it in the Ziploc. Oh, my but gosh. Like, I, it, and and it Nell has, said to me, maybe it's playing possum. I'm like, mice don't play possum. Mice most certainly do play possum. Well, now I know. Yeah. I'm not a possum, but I play one on TV. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is what will happen with animals that are overwhelmed and are unable to fight, their dorsal vagus nerve system activates the sympathetic drive system that shuts everything down. It shuts your heart rate down. It shuts your breathing rate down. And when it shuts your heart rate down, blood leaves the central nervous system and you lose consciousness. And this is what a mouse will do. Hmm. This is what a possum will do. And it's not like it's now just waiting consciously. No, it will wait for the danger to pass and it usually takes a long time. And this is something else that's usually that is important to know. Because it's not myelinated, when those nerve endings fire, they don't have the flexible capacity to fire in a different way quickly. When you and I are talking to each other, you're talking to your daughter, I'm talking to my wife, my son, or our friends or whatever, and we get irritated, upset, sad or whatever, we respond flexibly because we're using the anterior portion of that vagus nerve. We're using the, the, this myelinated part that can actually adapt and it, because it's, it's using other people's brains to do this. Mm. When I'm by myself and that dorsal vagus nerve acts, 
it does so in such a way that once it fires, it's going to be difficult to reverse that. And the reason that's important is because this, these are the rails that shame run on as well, which we'll talk about in our next episode. Shame run on these rails, which is why it's like you start to feel shame and like the, the situation can resolve itself and like you feel shame for days. Right. You can't get rid of it. And why is this important then when it comes to trauma? Because trauma overwhelms the setting. And it sends us into this place where we are even having to cope where like I'm, I'm constantly either in fight or flight mode because maybe that's all I'm, I'm, I can do that, but that's all I can do. Like, so I'm living in a house where my dad's an alcoholic and you know, I, it, it doesn't create collapse, but I, like I'm constantly on high alert and you know, our brains are meant to be able to be on high alert for short periods yeah, of time. But not constantly. Right. And once they collapse, I don't have a way of predicting how I'm going to be able to come back from that. And so we talk about how then trauma brings us into this place of what we would call terror, disintegration, dissociation, which we've already talked about, our perceptual shattering. We have what we call these repetition flashbacks that I find myself, I'm reactivating. And why is that? Because when my brain is overwhelmed in this way and I'm now outside the window of tolerance, we call either hyper or hypo activity. Hyper meaning fight or flight. Hypo meaning collapse. Right. I'm not able to be creative. Humor doesn't help me. I can't be curious. I have a friend, his name's Roger, and uh, he was a pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon. I write about him in Anatomy of the Soul, and this was a guy who when he was about 10, lost his two-year-old brother to a car accident right in front of him. And from that day forward, being the smart guy that he was, he just really kind of cut off his emotional states because his parents, they were unable themselves to kind of comfort. I mean, they couldn't get them their own comfort, let alone comfort him. By the time that he came into my office in his late 30s, I mean, he'd already risen in the ranks. I mean, he had all this, this amazing academic uh, and surgical pedigree. Um, but he couldn't parent his own two-year-old. He would lose his cool with his two-year-old. He wanted to have other kids, and his wife's like, no dice. Like, not until you, like, you're, like, you are a world-renowned pediatric surgeon. But, like, I can't afford, we can't afford to have another kid. Hmm. Because the trauma of his unfinished business, this meant he, he, had, he had taken a part of him that wanted to be able to flee, but couldn't. And all he could do would be to have, that part of him was in, essentially collapsed. And then we think about Gail, this you know, IT entrepreneur who you know, grew up in a house where, again, just really things were out of control in her house. And a father who was physically abusive. And I'll never forget not long ago in one of our confessional communities that she's part of, she started to name things that were taking place in her life as a young girl. And they, things were coming to her lickety split that she hadn't thought about in years. And as she named them, she, she was sitting there like in the room and was just becoming, oh, like becoming, you know, short of breath. Mm -hmm. And she turns and she needed assistance in the room at the time. And so in that moment, she, her, her emotion was her body, right? So this is a person who was now moving hyper arousal, but she, wh what do I do with this, this trauma? It's like 
working its way out of her even after 25, 30 years. The trauma is working its way out of her while we're sitting there in the group. Mm. And another group leader was able to stay with her long enough. And we ran some exercises with her in which, and all we did was we just had her pay attention to what we were doing with our bodies, how we were looking at her, the tone of our voices. We all, each one put our hand on our chests and we were just able to help her regulate, not because we were telling her anything. We just wanted her to pay attention to what she was sensing and what she was sensing us sensing. But to do that, we had to do what we could to widen her window of tolerance just enough to bring her back in, in order for her then to do what she needed to do to regulate those emotional tones and tenors that had exploded within her body. And she did that in the context of this group. And then I think of Jeremy, my friend who was special operations and He's now, I mean, for many of our audience, I mean, this was the first Gulf War, so a long, a long mm-hmm. time ago. And this was a guy who, you know, has seen, seen things that you just can't make this stuff up. And, um, and for the most part, has very, even, even has very little sensation in his lower body. Completely fit, completely capable but no sensation emotionally in his lower body because he's so cut off because of the trauma. And so these are just three examples of what happens with folks and how healing, as we like to say, often begins at the beginning. Healing begins by first paying attention to our bodies in their over or under reactive states. For Gail in the room, it was just being where she was finding herself really upset, but being able to just say, yes, I'm, I'm upset. I'm, I, I can't do this. And we come to her aid and say, take a breath, look at me, listen to my voice, take your right hand and put it on your chest. She could do that. And now I want you to just feel, press, press on your chest just ever so gently. She could do that. And so she could feel her hand on her chest. Mm-hmm. And so she could feel her chest with her hand And she could feel her hand with her chest, which are two different neural circuits. But for her to do that meant that she was bringing her attention back into the window of tolerance and using her social engagement system Mm -hmm. with me and with others to do it. And then I said, tell me what you see in my face. Tell me what you see. And she started to say what she didn't see. Well, you're not upset with me. I said, tell me what you see. I see kindness. I see your smile. I what, what, pay attention to that. So we're we're inviting her body to work with my body and the bodies of others in the room, and so in this way we're helping her move back into in other uh, other episodes we've talked about this river of integration mm-hmm. moving out of out of for her the bank off the bank of chaos into this river of integration. There are some other things that we can do. There's an exercise called the body scan that you all can, uh, you, you can, you can find this online in a number of different places. You, if you just Google body scan, there are multiple different places where you can get that. There is a breathing exercise that you can find on my website, kurtthompsonmd.com. There's a breathing exercise that will take you through for about five minutes that helps you 
connect with your body more effectively. We're going to talk in just a minute about another form of comfort in which we uh, tap ourselves on both sides of the body. We can just cross our arms, put our hands on our upper arms, and just tap back and forth. Back and forth, back and forth. And at first glance, you're thinking like, Kurt, like, I don't know what the heck you're doing. But think about this. When you are comforting a newborn or an infant, I remember when I would hold my kids and they were upset, mm. I would ever so gently, I would hold them and I would pat their bottom. Mm. I would just pat their bottom. There's a certain rhythmic sense, right? We are rhythmic people. And when we are either and we are outside the window of tolerance, we are no longer rhythmic. We are stuck in one place or another. Our body is in a prison of some kind of either it's on fire or it's collapsed. But to tap back and forth lets our brain know that we're coming for it, hmm. that it's not going to be left alone. And tapping can be a comforting, grounding exercise. Walking with intention, not just pacing, but walking, saying, I'm going to go around my block two times. And as I do, I'm going to pay attention to what I feel when my feet hit the ground. Another exercise that we have for grounding purposes is we have people literally stand up sometimes and we have them gently or even firmly stamp on the ground to feel the weight of their body hitting the earth and feeling the earth coming back up through their body so that they feel this sense. Because one of the things that we're doing with all of this is that we are completing the trauma cycle's physical escape route. I'm just going to walk through this real quickly because we're getting close to our time. Um, it's important to know that uh, when you, you'll, you'll watch this in, in animals in the wild, if ever an animal has been cornered, if it's ever been threatened by a predator, but the predator leaves it alone and the animal collapses, when the animal wakes up, you will find that the animal does not simply wake up and then just suddenly behave normally. It will wake up and it will start to shudder because what it's doing is it is enacting what it wanted to be able to enact but couldn't because of the predator. And it has to finish, it has to complete its cycle of trauma escape. If you were suddenly cornered by, if you were, if you were in a house fire and you're terrified and you get out of the house, you're relieved because your autonomic nervous system, your fight or flight system did exactly what it's supposed to do. It moves you out of that and you're afraid for the moment, but you move in response, just like the dogs in the cage that are shocked and they do move out of the cage. It's completing the cycle and then you feel better. Trauma, remember, our sense that we are overwhelmed and there's nothing we can do about that. So we talk about this uh, completion of a trauma physical escape route through a number of different things. We talk about, um, first, the, the, you, can, you can rate how high your stress is. That's a helpful thing to do for, as you think about different mm. traumatic events for you. Rate. And then we, once you've done that, you can start to go through some of these, some grounding steps. We talk about this butterfly hugging and tapping that we uh, talk about. Um, we can do what I we mentioned. You can ground yourself by putting your feet on the ground, stomping lightly or heavily to give yourself some sense of your lower body being firmly rooted to the ground. Um, you start to notice your breathing slowly, gradually noticing your breathing, often putting your hand on your chest. Again, as I said, you can feel your hand with your chest. You can feel your chest with your hand. And then we begin to move toward discharging, 
things. Once we've grounded, once we've supported this system, we want to discharge this. We want to breathe in a particular way that is strong, deep. Sometimes we breathe heavily, intentionally. You want to feel your breath in your stomach. You want to notice what any, any distress that you feel in your stomach. And again, we don't want you to judge whether or not you should or shouldn't be feeling certain things, but we're going to breathe hard. Next time, next thing we would want to do is you're just going to pay attention to what you feel, your emotional states. And then you want to pay attention to what you're thinking, what your thoughts are that are related to all these things, one thought at a time. And the next thing that we want to do as we, um, you know, as we get to the end of this discharge is we want to really have you reflect on what your resources are. Who are the people that you would want to have be in the room with you if you were going to do this? And that's a, these, these things are, are other resources in, the, in a number of the books that we've talked about. There are explanations for this in more detail, but we want, at the end of the day, remember, so much of my sense of being traumatized has to do with my sense that I'm, I'm overwhelmed, I'm alone. Mm. I'm just imagining your daughter, Pepper, and imagining if she were to talk to her friend later in that same day or the next day and describe, what was it like for me to have my dad as a resource? Mm. How did having my dad speak to me in the way that he did and be with me in the way that he did, how did that help me have a completely different outcome for my day than I would have had had he not been there. And this then brings us right back, I think, uh, you know, to one of our grounding texts that we've pointed to, John 16, 33. These things, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. To be in Jesus, as he says, so that in me you will have peace. To be in Jesus, first and foremost, is an embodied activity, not a disembodied spiritual one. Who are the people that are enabling you to imagine that Jesus' body is present and with you in the same way, Pep, that you were with your daughter? Second, to be in Jesus is to be then in his body of believers. Who are the people that are going to be with me then? And to be connected via our physicality engages our social engagement system bringing us back into our window of tolerance. These are a number of things that we can go into more detail in, you know, at, at some point. So this week, our exercise mm-hmm. for the week, real quickly, um, one thing you can do is just locate uh, on the uh, on my website, Kurt Thompson MD, uh, there is a, uh, we said, we've mentioned there's a breath exercise on the reflections page. And I would say practice this exercise once every day. And just Start to pay attention to what you sense in your body as you're breathing, not only during the exercise, but also at other times during the day. Uh, Begin to notice not just what you sense, but how you respond physically when you're in various settings. And as you do, be curious about how long you recall sensing or feeling what you're doing. Again, it's drawing our attention to our body. And in this way, we are increasing our degree of integration. Not only do you pay attention to what you sense and feel, but also what are your thoughts? What's the story that you're telling about these and how are they related perhaps to other stories where you felt these things before? Um, We mentioned the body scan exercises that you can locate on the internet that can help you be more connected to your body's response. And this is intended to increase your awareness as well. And always, as always, uh, should you start to feel more uncomfortable at any time, Uh, We really want to encourage you to seek help uh, from a close friend, a pastor, or a counselor. As we've said before, this is our our podcast is 
not a substitute for that kind of work. And we know that many of you who are listening to this um, are in places where that kind of work could be really helpful and necessary. And so, uh, Pepper, I, I just I just realized that um, I think I'm tired <laughs> of this conversation. Yeah. I think I'm tired. And I think about the stories that have been moving through my mind. I, I think about the amount of uh, work that we burn, not just telling these stories, talking about this, but also just imagining... Um, how our talking about these things can evoke things in other in, in our listeners uh, that, that can have them be tired too. And so uh, we also say that when you do this kind of work, sometimes your body says, I'd like to take a nap. Uh, and when you hear it say that, uh, it's those are good words to pay attention to. Yeah. Go grab that weighted blanket. Yep. Right on. Yeah. Right on. Thank you, Kurt. Thanks for today. Thanks for everything you shared today. It's uh, mm. helpful. Just helpful. A lot. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, and I've hopefully, got, um, oh, I've, go ahead. I've got to go because I've got a mouse to go tend to. Okay. Uh, so I love and you. we will be, and, and we'll be offering the, uh, the post-test in Swedish. Yes. Um, Those of you watching uh, on uh, YouTube, uh, stand by because Amy's going to join us. We're going to have a little post-show conversation. Very good. See you. Love you, man. You too. See you. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and editing is by Keaton Simons. Video production and editing is by Mark Gould. Speaking of videos, each week we post the video version of every episode to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media at BeingKnownPod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Tell all of your friends. And please like, rate, and review. Be well, be known.